I'm John Dauberstein, Senior Editor at No-Till Farmer, and welcome to the latest edition of our 2018 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Building Up Your No-Till Nutrient Management to Protect the Environment and Your Profitability, is sponsored by Yitter Manufacturing Company. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yitter Manufacturing Company for sponsoring today's episode. With a tradition of providing farmers solutions since 1930, Yitter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment in tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. It's no secret no-tillers have worked to reduce soil losses on their farms, even in the steepest landscapes. But Amber Raditz asks an important question, is no-till alone enough to control phosphorus and nitrogen from washing away into local watersheds? The co-director at the University of Wisconsin's Discovery Farms program will share on-farm data from more than 200 site years in Wisconsin and Minnesota that shed light on the relationship between phosphorus, nitrogen, and no-till. She will also discuss how no-tillers can assess weather and runoff risk and provide guidance on when, where, and how growers can spread manure and fertilizer for environmental and profit protection. While enjoying this program, I encourage you to download a PDF of Amber's presentation, which is provided on the No-Till Farmer website landing page for this podcast, so you can follow along and learn more about promoting healthy no-tilled soils. So Discovery Farms has been around in Wisconsin for about the last 15 years. We have grown to other states as well. Arkansas has a program, North Dakota had a program, and Minnesota has a program. We, this program was started as a way to try and bring research from the university, from the research station, onto privately owned farms. In Wisconsin, the reason for that was because I don't know about any of your other states, but in Wisconsin, we have a few different landscapes to work with. Not everything looks exactly the same. And we have a few different farming systems to work with, like about the same number as the number of farmers we have, right? Um, but we wanted to be able to represent different landscapes and different farming systems and get some kind of a baseline of information of what does runoff, what it, when does runoff occur, how much runoff happens, and what is in that. And how is that influenced by different farming practices or landscapes or land uses, things like that. So basically, the reason why the program was started was to be able to put some science to regulation, to be able to put some science into those numbers that are used to act as benchmarks for water quality regulation and things like that, and not just be uh, WAG. Anybody know what a WAG is? That's right, a wild ass guess. Most of, before we were able to have this kind of research in Wisconsin, most of the numbers that were put forth as benchmarks for how much was lost or uh, what your numbers should be were based on good guesses 
and feelings. You know, somebody at that table had a feeling about the way this should be. Well, now we have the science to be able to add to that conversation. And that's huge. My title, um, I'm really not going to talk about nutrient management. Nutrient management, I think Ray did a good job this morning of saying how that's become this word that means a whole bunch of, this phrase that means a whole bunch of stuff. What I'm going to talk about is how your farming systems might be impacting water quality and what you could do to tweak that for the positive. The Discovery Farms program, I talked a little bit about the research. We do water quality research and we do nitrogen, phosphorus, sediment, and the water that leaves the field over the surface or in tile. We don't do any of the pesticide things, any of the bacteria stuff, and I don't really wanna. What we're trying to get a handle on is these things and there's enough work to be done there. In Wisconsin, we've been doing the research, but really at our core, we're farmer-led. What that means to us is that, as the farmer mentioned this morning, that information goes in a two-way street. We're not here to just give you information. We're here to take what you're doing, see if we can see something in the science about it, and have that continuous feedback loop. We have a steering committee made up of the ag and environmental organizations in Wisconsin. They help us define our research. They help us find participants, things like that. And then folks like that, this is a guy by the name of Joe Bragger. He was the first farmer to volunteer to be a discovery farm in the state. And since then, he's hosted tons of tours on his place. He's talked about what he's learned from, the, from that research. And that, those are also the farmer leadership piece. The folks that have had monitoring on their place or benefited somehow from understanding what the science says and have a story to tell about it. In Wisconsin, that puts us in a very unique position when it comes to rulemaking about water quality or those discussions about water quality. I think we're further ahead because of it. I could be biased, but I think we're further ahead because of it. We're in a proactive position. This is a map of the state. Um, we are currently operating in the counties that are dark blue. We have been in the counties that are light blue, and we're working to expand our network all the time. We have not been everywhere in the state, but we're continuing to work on that. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like in Wisconsin most of the winter. <laughs> right now, today, we actually got rain at home, and now we're getting snow on top of that, which means there's ice in the middle, and that's going to be super fun to deal with. But these sites that we put on farmer's fields stay in place for about five to seven years. We want to try to get a variety of weather conditions. We want to try to get a variety of cropping situations and get through the rotation, things like that. So a station gets put in. This is a surface water station. You can see there's a cornfield there. This is a waterway. Water is direct. Water flows down through the waterway and through our station. And we know how much, how many acres are in that basin because we define it by doing some surveys and then put these wing walls in to direct water through that flume. So by the time that, this, that we have data from this, we know how much water went through this station, and we know that because there's a continuous pressure flow coming out of there, and so when there's water in it, the pressure reading changes. Does that make sense? So how much pressure it takes to push that gas out changes when there's water in here. Just like if you dive to the bottom of a swimming pool, the pressure in your ears change. Same principle. So this takes continuous readings, we know how much water went through there, we know when it came, and we know how many acres it came from. 
So then when we analyze that for the amount of soil, nitrogen, and phosphorus in it, we get a concentration, which is like a parts per million type of a number. We also get a total load, which is saying like a thousand pounds of sediment left this whole field. And then we get a pounds per acre measurement too. So being able to talk to farmers about this pounds per acre thing, because that's the way you got to run a farm, right? You don't run a farm based on concentrations. You don't run a farm based on a total load. You know, if you say, well, my fertilizer, you know, when I get fertilizer, I get three tons of it. I don't really know where it goes. I don't really know what I do with it, but I get three tons. So we had to get down to this pounds per acre measurement. The samples are collected in this box, and then our staff comes out and takes them and puts them on ice, or they stay cold, they're in a refrigerator. We take them to the sample analysis lab, and there they're analyzed for a couple different types of phosphorus, three types of nitrogen, sediment, and um, chloride. Any questions about these stations? We, uh, we work with the US Geological Survey in Wisconsin to do this. So when there is, these, are, these samples are connected by um, like wireless networking to our hub in Madison. And those guys have gotten very experienced in being able to set the sampler to the size of the storm. So if we know it's gonna be a long storm and runoff is gonna maybe trickle flow for quite a while, they'll set the sampling interval so we can characterize the whole storm. And then when we know it's gonna be an intense storm or something's gonna run off quickly, then they set the sampling interval based on that. When you're out to be able to be on private farms, you're not just limited by what's there at the experiment station, right? Or what you can do in a lab. Because you guys need the information that comes from a farm, from somebody who's gotta make their bottom line work at the end of the year. Do, re do experiment stations always have to make their bottom line work? I sure don't think so. <laughs> Otherwise, I can't figure out how they do some of the stuff that they do. But the point is, is that getting it out on that private farm gives you all these opportunities to look at these situations. And that's what we've been trying to do too. Originally, when we started, there was this idea that we could monitor for like three years and then change something and then you know, monitor three years later. That doesn't always work out very well because number one, as a farmer, you're not entirely sure that what you're doing should be changed. <laughs> and number two, the weather that goes along with all of that, you know, in the first three years, you, your weather can look one way. In the next three years, it can look totally different. And so being able to be more observational and then compare systems across through having different monitoring stations over time is kind of the way we're going at it. This is not like a plot by plot by plot. So what I feel like my job here today, and always, is to be able to provide science to support that continuous improvement mission that you all are going after. We need to be able to give you some science that goes with the tools that you're trying to implement and to help you address water quality issues. Because to me, as a person that works in this all the time, I feel like water quality is an issue that is gonna define the next generation of farming. And if it, you know, it's all something that you all are familiar with and interested in and being proactive about, but we know that not every farmer necessarily understands how this will shape the next generation. It really will. And so I feel like my job is to provide some of the science, use that continual feedback loop. Your job is to decide how to adopt and adapt these tools. Nothing that I present is gonna be something that you're gonna say, okay, now I'm gonna buy this tool and this tool, and I'm gonna have it all figured out by the end of the day. It has to be adapted to your own situation. 
And that's where the real magic happens, right? Is where you take one idea and bring it to your farm. And I think that that's the beauty of this whole conference. It's, that's where the magic is. So what I try to do is try to give farmers the ideas of being able to prioritize. Water quality can seem like this kind of like overarching thing, right? And phosphorus loss, it can come from everywhere and it's, out, it's all over and all. So how do you prioritize? So this is my example for prioritizing. Sometimes these changes can have a big impact and sometimes it's a little more subtle. On this piece of equipment, you all know what this piece of equipment is, right? Are you, any of you surprised I know what this piece of equipment is? In the barn, I always turned it to the right station I wanted, my dad always turned it to the other one. So on here, what are the things that give you a big impact? Tuning, what's the other one? Volume, exactly. What I'd like to say is that on a farming system, figuring out which dials give you the big, biggest bang for your buck are the first thing to do. Because if you're working with this piece of equipment, why would you mess around with balance, bass, and treble before you take the time to do volume and tuning? And so I think just the fact that you're at the no-till conference, you're already doing the volume and tuning. But as we're talking to farmers, this is kind of the prioritization. So is no-till alone enough to control phosphorus and nitrogen from leaving our fields and entering surface waters? No. Yes! Thank you. You're right. It's not. It's a big first step. Okay, so this is Wisconsin and Minnesota Discovery Farms data. We define no-till by one or less pass to prepare the seed bed in that cropping year. We define tillage as two or more passes. Okay, we had to make a line somewhere, right? And one pass could be vertical tillage or it could be chisel plowing, but one pass to prepare the seed bed. So as you can see here, these, usually I put these three graphs in sequentially so you don't have to look at it all at one time, so bear with me. First one here, this is soil loss. When you look at the tillage category here, what you can see is that what tillage, there are probably places where tillage does not significantly increase soil losses, right? Because this median number here means that 50% of the data is below that. So there's a lot of years where tillage of two or more passes did not lead to huge, huge soil losses, okay? So there might be places where it could work as a, you know, and not be hugely detrimental for soil loss. But the range there, to me, is really important. You can get a range of that last 50% of my data goes from this number, which is about 205 pounds per acre, all the way up to about 6,500 pounds per acre. And that's a range I can't live with. That's a range that's too big for me. And so what I love about no-till is the fact that that range is so small. I mean, what we have in there is about 100 site years worth of data and on about 30 farms, I think. And that range is so small. That's a variety of weather conditions. So no-till does its job for soil loss, which you all knew, right? That's right. Yes, thank you for that distinction. When I'm talking soil loss, I mean soil that made it to my monitor and through it. 
like the, the Russell 2 numbers or the soil conservation planning numbers of T is not in a direct comparison with the number I'm talking about. Yes, thank you for that distinction. Because T is a number of the soil movement that can happen within an entire field or within an acre of your field, okay? So this is actually soil that left the field. The median here for no-till is 65 pounds per acre and none of those numbers are above 1,000. So even in some of the different weather conditions we've had, and we monitor some fields that are pretty darn steep to farm, no-till does its job for soil loss. We'll rejoin Amber's presentation in a moment, but I'd like to thank Yenor Manufacturing Company for sponsoring today's episode. With a tradition of providing farmers solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment in tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O dot com. Now let's get back to Amber's presentation as she discusses the type of phosphorus losses no-tillers are in danger of realizing in certain weather conditions and the role that precipitation patterns, frozen farm ground, and fertilizer timing can play with nutrients leaving the farm via runoff. She also shares some suggestions on how no-tillers can reduce the runoff risk and keep local watersheds cleaner. When we come over here to this total phosphorus loss category, that's where things fall apart a little bit. What we start to see in the total phosphorus loss category is that they're even for median, just about even. According to the statistics, they're not statistically different, okay? And so what happens there is that these, the tillage farms here are losing their phosphorus as particulate phosphorus. Phosphorus that's attached to soil that's leaving the field. And for the no-till farms here, they're losing phosphorus as dissolved phosphorus. Phosphorus that's not necessarily attached to anything, but still available to be transported by water. And that you can see is evidenced over here. And here again is this big range. And I feel like what I'm trying to tell you today are the things that help you knock the top off of this range. This would be the site years. So the till count is 49 site years, no-till count is 36 site years. So that that may, on our no-till farms, we have about, I think there's 14 in there maybe, 14 farms, something like that. And then tillage is uh, probably around the same. And then that site years just means that there's a couple years on each of those farms. In terms of using this data to talk to policymakers in the state, it allows us to talk to them about ways that we can reduce our soil losses. Here's how you can reduce soil losses. However, you cannot have people only do this practice and consider it the end. So in terms of the way that it's been used in Wisconsin, it's used when we talk about winter manure application, it's used when we talk about soil conservation, it's used when we talk about trying to facilitate new practices and ideas out in the field. We, our data hasn't been used to set like a number, you know, that your T number should be X, Y, or Z but more so on the encouragement of different practices. So whether we're seeing trends with fields that have a history manure or no manure, I will tell you right now, and you'll see on the next slide, that some of this range up here comes from manure application timing, or it comes from soil test P at the surface 
that is above a certain range. So let me get to that. So here we go. This is what runoff looks like in Wisconsin, on average. Of course, average is sort of a cruddy thing, right? On average, if you put half your body in the oven and half your body in the freezer, you're on average a perfect body temperature, right? Or my favorite, when a soil scientist and a microbiologist and a statistician went hunting, and the soil scientist shot to the left three feet, and the microbiologist shot to the right three feet. Tell me if you've heard this one. Kentucky? Yeah? I stole it from a guy in Kentucky. A soil scientist shot to the right three feet, microbiologist shoots to the left three feet, statistician says, we got him! An average is a cruddy number, but it's what we've got, okay? So on average, this is what runoff looks like in Wisconsin. We have March and we have June, and then we have this February through June as our big time, and the rest of the year is almost nothing. This right here is from snow melt and rain on snow or frozen ground. We still have frozen ground in March, usually. And this right here, well basically all, this right here is from rain on saturated soils. And this right here is from intense rain or rain on saturated soils or a combination of both. That's how it breaks down. We're starting to get a little more February in there as we start to see some melts that happen in February. March is the month though. Look at that, that's double what any other month is. And overall it's about, if you add all those bars up, it's about two and a half inches a year. We're working with about 35 inches of precip rain equivalent. So two and a half inches, not bad on average. But what does that mean for phosphorus? So this is our average monthly phosphorus losses. Again, graph looks real similar to what it looked like for runoff, right? Like you were saying, when you, if you can you know, map out that precipitation, we aren't seeing where like in a year, if you have more precipitation, you always have more phosphorus losses. That's not necessarily how it works in Wisconsin. It's more subtle than that. But as we have more runoff in those certain times of the year, we have more phosphorus losses. What happens is those get dictated by our frozen ground or our non-frozen ground runoff, right? So here in February and March, the hashtagged parts of these bars are particulate phosphorus, and the solid parts of the bars are dissolved. In February and March, you can see dissolved is the king. That's where we see runoff from our no-till fields, our phosphorus runoff from no-till fields, is in February and March. Because soil is frozen, water is gonna run over it in Wisconsin. We're gonna have surface water runoff in Wisconsin. Because the soil is frozen, the snow melts, we get rain on all of that, and even though the soil is frozen, we're not losing any soil at that time, and no-till farmers have done their work of making sure that the soil is protected from erosion, that's when we see dissolved phosphorus come off of no-till farms. Then we get into this April, May, June part, the soil has thawed and particulate becomes the driver. In these five months of the year, we see 92% of our phosphorus losses happen. So if we can figure out the strategies for those five months of the year, we can knock the tops off of those things. Here's non-frozen data. So this is 594 events on here, so a rainfall runoff event. It does not run off every time it rains, so a runoff event is different than a rain event, but these are all runoff events. 594 of them only when the soil is not frozen. Okay, so in our part of the world, that's about April to about the end of November. What you can see here is that total phosphorus loss in pounds per acre goes from zero to three, and that's on this axis. Soil loss is on this axis. It goes from zero to 2,000. And there's really a pretty linear relationship. When soil loss goes up, phosphorus loss goes up, right? Except, do you see the exceptions? These are the times when 
fertilizer applications were put on just before runoff. And that's all dissolved phosphorus because soil loss did not increase. So timing matters. I don't care if you're using phosphorus fertilizer or phosphorus and manure. If it's put on right before runoff, it's going to go. I'm not saying if, it puts, if you put it on right before rain. If you put it on rain before, if you put it on right before rain that causes runoff, it will go. Now we get to manure and winter manure to be more precise. These are all frozen phosphorus losses by year. So like each of these dots represents one year on one farm. And what we can see here is that we've separated the data out so that the dark circles are dots that are years on that farm where there was no manure application. There could have been manure application sometime in the history of that farm on that field, but not that year. There, these circles with the plus in them are early winter manure application. That means it happened from November to January, at least once in that time from November to January. And then the open circles are late winter manure application. Manure application happened sometime in February and March. When we look at these numbers, what do you see? You see a lot of clusters down here, right? So even with no winter manure application, we saw phosphorus losses, dissolved phosphorus losses in the, in the frozen ground runoff. And you can see I've got frozen total phosphorus down here and frozen dissolved phosphorus up here. It's a one-to-one -one relationship, which means it's all dissolved. So the clusters down here, you can have dissolved phosphorus runoff in the wintertime even when there was no manure application. And there's a big cluster of the early winters and the no manures in there on the bottom. And then out here, these guys are those late winter manure applications. And again, if we go back to that idea of cutting off the top of the risk, this is a risky time in Wisconsin for people to be spreading manure. And so we've talked to them about where you can spread it safely, how you can do that, how you can use other strategies to get it spread at other times of the year, how to work within this system. We are the furthest north state with the most frozen ground with the most cows. This is a real thing for us. This is a real thing for us. We have frozen ground and we have manure and we gotta do something about both. So then we'll get to soil test P. Now for, on this graph, we have tillage farms and no-till farms. We don't have them split out. But if you were a no-till farm, you were incrementally soil sampled at zero to two. And if you are a tillage farm, you are had a zero to six inch sample. When it says soil test P of greater than 75, if you're a no-till farm, that means from zero to two, you are greater than 75. So when you do the statistics on this, as far as risk factors in the wintertime, having a soil test P above 75 is statistically similar to doing early winter manure application. So if you're a farm that doesn't have to do winter manure application at all, Basically, you're not safe from me, right? Because you still need to be watching that top two inches because water is going to run over it. And when it runs over it, if it's saturated with peat to that level, there's a, a risk factor there that's similar to if you spread manure from November to January. Does that make sense? And then again, this late winter guy is kind of off on his own. And these from 0 to 75 basically were statistically similar. This is my one tile graph of the whole thing. I am not a tile expert, um, but I think it's important to think about, and I think you were kind of getting at this earlier with your question about tile. So when we look at, these are just tile sites now. The surface water sites were on the other graph. These are just tile sites. 
when we look at dissolved pee, and now this is in a concentration here, um, so make sure you pay attention to that. And then on the bottom, we have soil test P as parts per million. We start to see an uptick in the concentration of dissolved P in tile lines once we get above, like there's kind of a break point here once we're looking at 60 and above. We start to really see an uptick there. And so this, this is water that's coming through tile lines. And same method for determining soil test P. So that dissol this dissolved P monster is something that we're going to kind of continue working through. If you're listening to this podcast and it's got you thinking about nutrient management, you'll be sure to pick up helpful tips and information at the upcoming 27th Annual National No-Tillage Conference coming up January 8th through the 11th, 2019 in Indianapolis. The full conference program for this one-of-a-kind event has just been released, so please go to www.notillconference.com to download the program and see what actionable no-till management strategies our speakers will bring to the table in January. For example, in the realm of nutrient management, during the National No-Tillage Conference luncheon on Wednesday, January 9th, three winners of the Responsible Nutrient Management Practitioners Award will be sharing their strategies for utilizing nutrients on their farm more responsibly while still maximizing their operations bottom line. Several other no-tillers will discuss how they use cover crops and precision fertilizer application to make their crop nutrient program more efficient. The Responsible Nutrient Management Practitioners Award is co-sponsored by No-Till Farmer and AgriLiquid. Register online today for just $339 and register additional farm and family members for just $312. Or complete and return the downloadable registration form by going to notillconference.com. To register by phone or to speak with an NNTC staff member, please call 262-432-0388 or email your questions to nntc at no-tillfarmer.com. Let's get back to our podcast now as Amber Raditz talks about the value of low disturbance manure injection in reducing soil losses and runoff from agricultural areas. Amber will also let you know about a field walkover guide, a decision tree that can be used by farmers to determine if they need to make changes to their water management program. You can find this guide at www.uwdiscoveryfarms.org or go to the landing page for this podcast at www.notillfarmer.com and download a copy of this walkover guide. What we're working on as we continue to go forward, that, you know, what we've worked on in the first 15 or so years is trying to get a baseline, doing a lot of observational type data. What does this system look like? How does that system perform? You know, how do we look at these things? As we go forward, we're sort of starting to push the envelope about what, what do cover crops have as a duty in this whole thing? Do they make things worse? Do they make things better? How do they change it? They're just going to change it, right? In Wisconsin, most of our cover crops are rye. Unless you have a wheat crop and can get something in earlier, rye is about your only option after, for sure after soybeans. Some people plan with other things after corn silage. We harvest a lot of corn silage in Wisconsin. The other things we're trying to figure out are about manure. Right? Should we really be telling cow, pig, chicken, whatever, you poop here, I'll put it in this storage thing there, and then I'll just spread it on the field over there. 
is there a better way to do this? What are some of the emerging technologies related to that? And how do we interplay no-till and manure and cover crops? That's a big question for Wisconsin. And how do we encourage, we've got a lot of people that have started to try no-till, but this network of conservation practices has been kind of left in some cases. So people will do no-till, but then other routine maintenance of concentrated flow areas and things like that kind of have fallen to the wayside. So how do we get this network to work together? So CAFOs are uh, regulated to, to inject um, for the most part, unless it's onto a living crop which could be alfalfa or a cover crop. And then the rest of us are not made to incorporate. There's a lot of interest in low disturbance incorporation in Wisconsin, and I think there should be. I think that basically what we're seeing is that if you can get phosphorus, especially from manure, below the soil surface without doing so much soil disturbance that you end up with more erosion, then that's a system that's gonna really tighten those ranges. So those are sort of some of the things that we're looking to monitor over the next little while here. Field management using this direct plant technology or no-till is really one piece of this puzzle and what we're trying to encourage farmers to do is to use all the pieces together. So this is something that we developed called a field walkover guide. Basically real similar to what the folks in the conservation offices use to try and determine whether you need a new waterway, whether you need more infield practices, stuff like that. So this is a decision tree basically can go through there and make some decisions about whether you think things are functioning properly. The state, of, the state of the state in Wisconsin is that we don't have enough personnel to be boots on every field or to be boots in every, you know, on every farm. And so what we're trying to encourage farmers to do is to do some of that themselves. There are, there's some room for you all to be in charge of that and then work with the conservation office to get the things done that you determine need to be done. So this is something that's on our, available on our website if you're interested in that. And there's tons of other stuff, including the data that I presented here in different handouts and things like that. I realize some of it doesn't necessarily apply to all of your situations if you're a little further south or have a little bit of different landscape, but really when it comes down to it, what we believe is that every management system has an area to be improved. And you all believe that, well, otherwise why would you be here? And so when it comes to environmental and no-till, I think no-till is a huge step in the puzzle. You, you know, you've completed this huge priority step because you've curbed soil loss. It does a great job at eliminating soil loss. But then there are these small tweaks that still remain to be made. And those are, to me, carefully timing applications, making sure that you are watching for whether there are um, weather events coming your way, what, if you live in a place where you get a lot of snow, looking at this idea of you know, snow melt and how that's gonna impact things, and really realizing that that timing of application plays a huge role in annual losses. So one day's decision could be the big deal. And then considering placement, like you mentioned, if you've got manure, the low disturbance technology that we have now, if you can incorporate it, without doing so much soil disturbance that you end up having soil losses, I'm a fan. If you incorporate and have to come back and straighten things out before you can plant a crop, I am not a fan. Because I think you take a bigger step controlling soil loss than you would incorporating manure. And then the last one is really watching those soil test levels. And that's, that's the one that applies no matter what kind of operation you're in. I realize if you don't have manure, you're probably thinking, man, 75 parts per million? Nope. <laughs> 
But the thing is, is that is one of those subtle things that I think can kind of sneak up on you. We'd like to sincerely thank Amber Raditz, co-director of the University of Wisconsin's Discovery Farms program, for sharing how no-tillers can assess weather and runoff risk and when, where, and how growers can spread manure and fertilizer for environmental and profit protection. For listeners who'd like to hear more about successful strategies for no-till practices, please visit no-tillfarmer.com podcasts. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Gator Manufacturing Company, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, feel free to drop me an email at jdoberstein at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2430. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer, with the farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R, and on our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For Amber Raditz and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Senior Editor John Dauberstein. Thank you for listening. 